Welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast, where we teach you how to make a better investment and retirement portfolio. Our goal is to explain everything from basic to advanced concepts in plain language that you can understand, whether you are a beginning investor or a professional. Welcome listeners to episode six. Now, have you ever wondered how many different types of investing and trading styles there are? You might have wondered what people mean when they say, I'm a value investor, or I use technical analysis. Some might even say I use fundamental analysis or I'm a momentum trader. I'm going to explain all these different types of styles, give some of my experiences, and shed some light on different perspectives. Now this episode is going to be really important if you have an interest in picking stocks or even if you want to choose different mutual funds, index funds, and ETFs. Many different financial products advertise themselves as using a particular type of investing or trading style. For example, you'll find a lot of mutual funds or ETFs say this is a value fund or this is a growth fund. And, as usual, you will be able to see the script of this podcast online at blog.tingo.com if you want to follow along or maybe read in your spare time. Now, before I begin, there is one thing I need to discuss, and you can choose to skip over the next few minutes if you decide, but given how much time we put into this podcast, both us creating it and you listening to it, it would really mean a lot to me if you could just listen for the next few minutes. Now, a year ago, I left my job trading professionally, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Strange, right? (laughs) I left a great job where I was doing well, the first employee of a hedge fund that grew fivefold in a year, and on a whim I left. Well, I didn't really leave on a whim. The reason I left is that something inside of me wanted to do more. Over the past few years, I saw many people lose money to misinformation, misleading articles, uh, maybe some investments that weren't in their best interest. I mean, it's nobody's fault. It's strange, isn't it? Our whole life, we learn things like writing and science, but nobody ever teaches us financing or or investing. Then suddenly, when we get our first job in our 20s or 30s, everybody is telling us to invest. Suddenly, everyone's telling you, put your money in this mutual fund or this index fund. But wait, who taught us any of this? This would be like never taking a history class from first grade through high school, then the day after graduation, somebody telling you, okay, you need to write a paper outlining the American Revolutionary War in exquisite detail if you want to retire. Wait, what? This is what financial education is today. It's pretty much non-existent outside of you wanting to go out and proactively learn. For example, if you're listening to this podcast. And this is why we need movements like what Tingo is bringing forth to sort of fill in this gap. The point of this podcast is to promote education and financial literacy, and not just the basics. That's too simple. Soon this podcast is going to be touching upon some very advanced stuff, and it already kind of has. But I promise you, as I create this podcast, you'll be able to follow along perfectly. Alongside this, alongside this podcast, I've built tools that allow people to use this education to better their portfolios. I continue to build these tools out, and I find more and more users are using them as they listen to this podcast. Now, Tingo's intention has always been to help people. It's the first and foremost goal. I always figured monetizing Tingo or finding a way to make the business sustainable would figure itself out. But the reality is, is we've spent the past year building Tingo, and I know I've been trying to support it out of my own pocket, bootstrapping. And for the, for Tingo to continue moving and for the community to, to, to continue to exist, I simply ask that you pay whatever you feel is appropriate. Even if it's $2 a month, $3 a month, you know, less than a cup of coffee, it can make a huge difference. Now, I don't know the financial situation of any of my listeners, so you just give whatever you feel is appropriate or can afford to pay. Now, I ask that you do this so we can continue to have these podcasts, the website, and these cool tools. You can give or support Tingo at tingo.com forward slash support. That's T-I-I-N-G-O dot com forward slash support. Now, these tools are going to be free, so if you can't afford them or don't want to pay, still feel free to use them. I don't believe in showing any partiality between those who can pay and those who can't. You always know your situation better than I, but I want you to know that when you support Tingo, I don't want you to see it as just a donation, because it's not a donation. Tingo is a corporation, not a nonprofit. And the reason is, is that if Tingo is a corporation, it gives us the flexibility to enter new areas and to grow in the way that we need. The goal for Tingo is right now we provide financial education and financial tools and services. But what if one day we could do more than that? And being a corporate structure allows us to grow and get that flexibility. Now understand that Tingo's mantra is actively be good. A famous mantra in tech is don't be evil. But for the financial sector, I think it needs to be stronger than that. We need to adopt actively be good. 
And the great thing about Tingo's corporate structure is that if any time you feel that we're not staying true to our values, you can immediately pull away your money and Tingo will cease to exist. And that's the type of company I believe our community wants us to exist. So like I said, if you want to support the Tingo mission, the community, web app, or even podcast, please consider paying whatever you feel is appropriate. Once again, the URL is tingo.com, T-I-I-N-G-O.com forward slash support. Now with my heartfelt message aside, let's get into some investing and trading fun. Woo woo! So now you're thinking, Rishi, I get all the basics and some more, and I understand some of the statistics, but what else is there? And this is the perfect podcast episode for you. As I promised in episode five, I need stats, stat, still love that title. In this episode, we're going to pull away from statistics a little bit and talk about something that's equally important, and that's understanding all the different types of trading and investing styles. A lot of mutual funds and a lot of index funds and ETFs all advertise specific styles, and understanding where they're coming from and how they work will help make you a better investor and understand what fits best for you. Now, a lot of famous individuals you hear about tend to stick to a particular type of trading or investing. For example, Warren Buffett is the most well-known and richest value investor. This is a term we'll explore in a few moments. So understanding these different styles is important because if a professional trader or investor recommends a stock, mutual fund, index fund, or ETF, you'll have a better idea of where they're coming from. This will be important as some of you may hear a trading or investing style and be very put off by it. You know, it's really interesting how the way you invest or trade reflects personality sometimes. You have those who are very relaxed, long-term, feet on the desk, just sort of uh, watching the day go by. And then you have others who are constantly moving, taking action, yelling, and in and out of positions within a few minutes. So to begin, let's go ahead and start off with the basics of the different styles. And before we can start, we need to understand the difference between an investor and a trader. Once we do that, we'll start getting to a lot of the different kinds that exist and taking it a little further than a traditional textbook would. As usual, we will always start with the basics and build our way into some mind-blowing stuff. And just a heads up, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this topic. It's sort of like a philosophy I hold. So if you find these definitions slightly different than what other websites or books say, I'll explain why I think the ones presented here may be a more accurate representation. The traditional thought is that investors are long-term buy and holders. They are in a company because it's a fundamentally a solid company. What I mean by that is that each publicly traded company is required to publish accounting statements. What investors often do is that they consider the company's business prospects and the sector they're in, and then they look at the accounting statements to verify the company has solid business prospects. For example, they may look at the accounting statements and see a company has way too much debt and be put off by it. Now, investors consider themselves stakeholders in a company and typically have time horizons five years more out. They don't worry so much about what's going to happen the next month or so unless something drastic happens. But ultimately, an investor expects the company to outperform in the long run. What does this all mean? Investors treat companies they get in like a business. Let's say some of your work colleagues, let's say one of your work colleagues comes to you and says, hey, I want to start a restaurant business. Let me get some of that money. I'm not sure about you, but if one of my work colleagues who's been a programmer his whole life tells me that he wants to start a restaurant, I'm not going to immediately give him my money off the bat. I would want to make sure, at least, that what he brings for lunch actually looks appetizing and tastes delicious. But in all seriousness, while you may know the individual, if he asked you to become a partner and own, let's say, 50% of the restaurant, you would start making sure it's a good investment for you. You may look at where the restaurant is, what it sells, how good the food is, whether or not it's in a good location, and so on. You would want to make sure first that it's a good business. You may even look over the balance sheets of his other businesses to make sure there was no fraud in the past and he ran the business efficiently. And this approach, the way we will look at a colleague coming to us to start a restaurant, is the same approach an investor takes when they're getting into a business. Sometimes it can be tough for us to conceptualize this concept of viewing shares and stocks as companies because we're so used to just seeing the prices on a screen and and trading on them. We don't really think about the accounting behind the firm, or maybe its prospects sometimes. Warren Buffett is the most well-known example of a long-term investor. When he puts money in a company, he doesn't really have an end date. Now most of us may be thinking, well of course, when Warren Buffett buys shares, he ends up owning a huge percent of the company. While that's true, and companies sometimes hook him up with favorable deal terms because of his reputation, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take his same perspective. When you buy shares, you are owning a business. 
that's a fundamental fact, and it's a pretty awesome concept. Now, there is one thing that can make owning shares better than investing in your friend's restaurant, and that's a concept called liquidity. Liquidity is just a financial term that means being able to convert any asset you own, let's say it's a stock, a house, or even your laptop, and converting that asset into cash. Liquidity is the ability to convert that into cash. Your laptop may be less liquid, as well as your house, but stocks can be seen as usually a very liquid most of the time. You can simply go to your stockbroker, sell your shares, and voila, you no longer own the business once a transaction clears. Try doing that with your friend's business. It's going to be a lot more difficult to find somebody who wants to buy your 50% of that restaurant. So to recap, investors treat buying shares as owning an actual company. And just a quick aside, um, I just said that stocks are liquid most of the time. And I just want to say that sometimes stocks can be illiquid or not liquid if there are not very many shares issued or if volatility is very high. In our last episode, we discussed that in times of panic, there can be uncertainty and uncertainty reflects itself in volatility. And during these moments, liquidity can fall because people are unsure what to do. All right, on to traders. We are about to enter some gray area between investors and traders. You know, sometimes there is no clear-cut definition between the two, and I'm going to try my best to show why. Technically, when an investor buys or sells shares, they are trading stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, and so on. This is why it can get confusing. Technically, a trader is somebody who just trades an asset. Like when you're buying a stock for the long term, you're technically trading, you're buying. But this is a technical definition and isn't really helpful to us when we're trying to learn about the different styles. So when you hear trader in the media, it typically means something different than the technical definition. And this is the type of trader we're going to be talking about. A trader looks at a stock as something that has a defined end date. When they enter a position, they have a clearly defined rule for when they'll get out. Some of my listeners may claim that this is a pretty strict definition of a trader, and a lot of long-term investors also have a criteria for when they'll get out of a stock or investment. And that's right. But here's where I will argue where the difference lies. A trader gets in a position with the intention of them knowing that they will get out eventually. An investor enters a position without the intention of getting out, but they accept as a business changes, it may no longer be a good investment. I know you might be wondering what the difference is, and so I understand why it may seem so blurry. Now let's get back to our friend opening up a restaurant example. So let's say your friend who wants to open up a restaurant checks out. He's an amazing chef, and he found a way to put chocolate on a savory pizza and make it the best thing you've ever eaten. Well, I kind of just cringed at that thought, but I'm sure somebody's done it and they've done it brilliantly. And let's say this is your friend. Anyway, when you're giving money to your friend as an investor, you're not thinking, okay, I'll give him money. I'll make a ton of money, and then I'll get out in like a year from now. You may think, as an investor, okay, I'll give him money, his business idea seems legit, and I think he's going to be successful. And if he isn't successful, or if he goes off the deep end, I'll reevaluate, and maybe I'll put my, pull my money out. That is the perspective of an investor. Now, if you were a trader, you might think, okay, the quirky pizza market is so hot right now. It's going to be like the new up-and-coming food, just like what artisan cupcakes once, once were. I'm going to give him my money and pull out in two years from now when I think the quirky pizza market will top. Then I'll make the most amount of money and when it comes crashing, I'll be out of of that investment. That's the difference. The intention of you as a shareholder. One, the investor sees it as a business opportunity and the other, the trader, sees it as an opportunity to express a viewpoint they have. Here's why the intention matters so much. It's really the only way to separate the two. Some traders look at companies' balance sheets, some hold positions for more than a year, so typecasting traders as people who are in and out of positions very quickly isn't always accurate. There's a huge variety of different trading and investing styles. It's often said there are many ways to make money in markets. But when one sees it as a business and goes with the intention of it as a business, they are an investor. And one sees it as an an opportunity to capture a recent view they have regarding the market, they can be seen as a trader. So with the differences established, let's move forward. All right, this is going to be fun, I promise you. So many of us read about these amazing investors, but we don't. what we don't often hear is the style of these traders. As I said earlier, there are so many different styles of trading that really reflect a lot of different personalities. In this episode, we're going to describe some of the most, most common because a lot of mutual funds and ETFs were created to try and replicate these investing styles. The first one we're going to explore is one of the most common, value investing. 
The most famous value investor is known as Warren Buffett. Now, as we'll get to later, he actually doesn't just consider himself a value investor, but a lot of people usually associate him with value investing. The premise behind this style is that if you think a company is undervalued, you buy the company. For some reason, you think the market is undervaluing this company. This may be because you looked at the accounting sheets and you realize that according to their accounting sheets, they're really not valued the right way. Now, when you do look at these accounting sheets and, and run this analysis, it's known as fundamental analysis. This analysis is often combined with something else before a value investor decides to buy something. Now, before we move on to what the something else might be that they combine fundamental analysis with, let's go through an example that a value investor might use when they're doing fundamental analysis. The example we're going to bring up right now is something called book value. The, good, the book value is what a company is worth if you take the assets and subtract the liabilities. Now, what I mean by this is that imagine everything a company owns. The building, the computers, the technology, the patents, how much cash it has, what investments it has in other companies, and so on. These are known as the company's assets. Now, think of all the loans it owns, who it needs to pay money to, and so on. These are known as the liabilities. So if you take those assets and subtract the liabilities, you get how much the company is worth according to the books, or the book value. So if a company has $200 million worth of assets, its building, its computers, its patents, and so on, and a $40 million loan, or otherwise known as a one of its liabilities, its book value is going to be the $200 million worth of assets minus the $40 million worth of liabilities, and you get its book value at $160 million. The number 160 million is known as the book value of the company. So now in order to tell if this company, if the market is undervaluing this company, we need to figure out what the market sees this company is worth. Now we mentioned earlier of the concept of a share price and how that reflects what the uh, market views as the price of the company. But let's, let's look at this calculation from a different angle. So we had the $160 million worth of book value. Okay, now we're gonna calculate something called the price to book ratio. So to begin, as we just mentioned, a company is broken up into many, many different pieces. And let's say this company that we're using, the one with $160 million book value, let's say it's broken up to a million pieces or a million total shares. That means if we take 160 million, divided by the 1 million pieces, each share, each piece, represents $160. So each share of the company is worth $160 according to the book value. In other words, if the company is worth $160 million according to account accounting statements, and there are a million pieces of the company or shares of the company that exist, then each piece is worth $160. Now that we know what the book value is per share, we can now compare it to what the mar market price is each share. This is simply the stock price. So if you go to your favorite web app to look up the price of a stock, Tingo.com with two I's, T-I-I-N-G-O.com or Yahoo Finance or one of those other sites, let's say this stock according to one of these sites is trading at $80 a share. Whoa, that means if we closed down the company, sold off all of its assets, paid its loan, we would have $160 a share. Yet the market is selling this for only $80 a share. A value investor might immediately buy the stock because they think, wow, once the market realizes how undervalued this company is, other investors and traders will buy a ton and the price will get to $160 a share eventually. Right now it's only $80, but given that it's worth at least $160 according to its books, the price will have to eventually get there. So to calculate the price book ratio, we take the market price of the stock, $80, and we divide it by the book value of, this, of each share, which is 160. This creates a price book ratio of 0.5. Now this situation very rarely happens. Typically you see price to book ratios of two or greater. But let's say you do see a price book ratio of 0.5. Typically this will happen if there is something else the market thinks will happen. An accounting statement is typically released once a quarter or once every three months. In those three months, something could drastically change. For example, let's say we're an oil company and we make a lot of our money from selling oil. What if in the past three months, oil dropped from $100 a barrel to $50 a barrel? 
oil is half of what it used to be. Well, our business would be worth less because now we're selling a product that makes us less money. So the share price might fall quite a bit. It's because the market is taking that into consideration. But the accounting statements haven't updated yet because remember, they only update every three months. So the accounting statements won't take that, in, that consideration on the business until the next quarter. This is a common concept in finance called lagging data, where the market price is something quicker than the official source. So if you're seeing a price to book ratio of less than one, be skeptical. It could be the case that everything is okay, or you still think it's undervalued. Maybe not as much as the price book ratio tells you, but you still think it's overvalued and you think that the market overreacted. And this is the job of a value investor, to not only look for things that are undervalued, but also figure out why and whether or not those considerations make it less attractive. Now, price to book ratio is just one metric a value investor might look at. We will cover more metrics and what these accounting statements mean in future episodes. There are textbooks written on this topic, very, very thick textbooks. And given the limitations of this, of this one podcast episode, we can't properly cover this topic. But this is the basic idea behind value investing, and we'll get more into this in future episodes. So value investing, you buy things that are undervalued, or in other words, you buy things that are at a value. Now, to conclude this, a major drawback to value investing is that you assume the stock price will eventually accurately reflect what you think it's worth. For example, we bought the share at $80 because we think eventually it'll reach 160 Oftentimes, stocks may not do that, or the price may come down even lower. So what if it drops from $80 a share to $60 a share? Sometimes markets or other investors have their own train of thought. In a crisis period, something may look cheap because of panic selling, but because correlation is higher, things may continue to go down faster. In other words, because stocks are moving up and down together, regardless of how good or cheap a company is, stocks may move down together. So when you're buying something you think is low, it may even fall even lower. Now, especially during these crisis periods, buying something that's a value can often hurt you because it can mean that the stock can come even lower. Now, an example of a crisis period could be something like a recession. So once again, every time you think something looks cheap, ask yourself why, be skeptical. There may be a good reason why the rest of the market thinks the company is worth much less than the personal analysis we do. Every investor and trader always considers that into their analysis. It's just sort of like a fact of markets. If the market is pricing one thing and you're not, it's always worthwhile to consider maybe why the market is pricing that. All right, so the next type of common investing we're going to discuss is called growth investing. Growth investing is a type of investing where you expect a company to rapidly grow in earnings or for the potential future earnings. It kind of lives up to its name, right? The premise is easy to understand, but implementing it is a much more difficult idea. Many different investors have their own type or measure of criteria for detecting what makes a rapid growth stock. But the general consensus, consensus is that if you can expect the stock's earnings to grow at least 12% or higher a year, you can probably consider it a growth stock. Oftentimes, if a stock is growing too rapidly though, it could mean management may be getting a little bit too aggressive or reckless. There's almost sometimes like a sweet spot for certain investors. Because what if this company is taking out a lot of loans to achieve this earnings growth? Everything in moderation but sometimes people prefer a little bit less moderation. The biggest issue with growth stocks though is that we just can't predict the future. How do we know a company is gonna continue growing? What if people stop liking it or what if it falls short of expectations? When we think something's gonna continue growing, we often have to consider a lot of assumptions. I mean, we have to make a lot of assumptions in order, in order to assume something will keep growing. For example, if we take our friend's pizza place example, and let's say our friend's pizza place turns out to be rapidly growing. Everybody loves chocolate savory pizza. We assume that our friend's going to continue to grow. Now we're excited because at this rate, we're going to be so rich. But wait, what if the pizza has tons and tons of gluten? And suddenly the entire town goes gluten-free. Your friend tries making a gluten-free cup crust, but it just doesn't taste the same. When we assume the growth will continue, we're assuming a lot of things. In this case, the market changed, their tastes changed. They no longer wanted gluten and our friend's pizza place couldn't make a good gluten-free pizza and now his business isn't doing so hot. When we make these assumptions, and in this case the pizza assumption, we're assuming our audience is gonna maintain the same taste, the same ideas of health, and the same desire to get pizza. With investing, it's just like buying this pizza place or a business. They're really the same thing when we invest. 
We make a lot of assumptions when we're going to assume something is going to continue growing. The reason I bring up growth and value investing is first, these are the two most common types of investing. You often see mutual funds, ETFs, and even some index funds that have some sort of value or growth stock picking strategy. I say even index funds because they are seen as following a basic index. How could they do a different investing strategy if they follow an index, right? Like the S&P doesn't, isn't a value index or isn't a growth index. It's just the S&P. Now, oftentimes you see index mutual funds that have a value growth strategy. What they might do is, is that they might follow the S&P, but they may put a little bit more money in stocks they consider to be high value or high growth. Now, every mutual fund, index fund, and ETF has a different way on how they do this. So you have to read their methodology. I can't cover all the different types because there's so many. Now, the next disclaimer I want to make is that the line between value and growth is actually not so clear cut. Often pooled investments like mutual funds, index funds, and ETFs mix a blend of growth and value. And while some people consider Warren Buffett a value investor, he doesn't really consider himself that. He considers himself a value and growth investor and argues that they're really not that much different. His process uses both of these types of methodologies. And a general theme you'll notice among investors and traders is that they often blend different styles to create their own style. Once again, this often reflects personality and what appeals to them. Think of it almost as your political viewpoint. It's not common to have a viewpoint that's 100% the same as your political affiliation. There may be issues that you agree with your political party on, but there will probably be at least one or two issues that you disagree with them on. Same sort of thing with different styles of investing. You may be partial toward this one particular, particular style, but that doesn't mean you won't use any of the other styles. So moving on to that, let's discuss some of the different trading styles. And as we get into the different trading styles, a common stereotype is that an investor will focus primarily on the fundamentals of a company or the accounting, along with a few other market conditions. And the stereotype of traders is that they focus on something called technical analysis. The truth is, is that many traders and investors mix and match their styles. And if you want to learn more about the different styles, I strongly recommend you read the Market Wizard series of books. There are four of them. It's an interview style series of books that talks to the top traders and a couple investors, but mostly pretty much you can consider them all traders. And this book series talks to traders of many different generations. So it's a really insightful read, especially watching these traders change throughout time. And not only that, it's a quick and easy read, very entertaining. Uh, a lot of people really enjoy it. And you get to really see into the top minds of many different traders and their different styles. You'll truly see an incredible mixing and matching of different sort of styles and how they approach markets. But to continue, let's actually discuss what technical analysis is. It's the stereotype of traders, after all. Technical analysis is the idea of looking at price of a stock, the volume, how many shares were traded each day, and other historical market data to predict the future. Well, that's actually might be the technical definition to, quote, predict the future, unquote. But I'm going to expand upon this and say what technical analysis actually tries to do is not necessarily predict the future in the way we think about it, but... Technical analysis just tries to be right more than they're wrong. So technically, that is predicting the future, but not in the way we commonly think. For example, when we think predict the future, we might think of some sort of psychic or someone who can predict it with 100% certainty. The truth is, technical analysis, people who use it only tend to be right maybe more than half the time. This is often called a hit ratio. A hit ratio is simply a ratio of the number of winning trades to the number of losing trades. And typically, even some of the top traders will only be right, who, only the, excuse me, some of the top traders who use technical analysis may only be right 55% of the time. I mean, that's only pretty much half the time. So when they, when they say technical analysis tries to predict the future, it's not with 100% certainty. It's just trying to be right more often than they're wrong. This is actually true of basically all traders, not just those who use technical analysis. And there's a plot twist. <laughs> Sometimes traders don't mind being right less than half the time. Traders can often be right maybe 45% of the time. But then how do they make money? And this is how. Sometimes traders bet that even though they'll lose more times than they'll win, when they do win, they're going to win big enough to make up for the losses. And so you'll see that predicting the future is not in the way that we often think about. It's just being right more than we're wrong. And if we're wrong more than we're right, it's being right in a, in a stronger way, in a way we make more money. So let's do an example of what technical analysis is. One of the most 
common ideas is the idea of a golden cross. It requires doing a simple moving average calculation, or abbreviated SMA. And it's a very simple calculation. All you do is for each day, you take the average of the past X number of days. For example, an SMA 50 is a simple moving average of the past 50 days. So if we're calculating the SMA 50 of today, we calculate the average of the past 50 days. This captures a sort of general price trend. It smooths out the ups and downs, the choppiness of stock prices. I'm going to put a screenshot on the blog of what this looks like so you can sort of get a better visualization. And so going back to the Golden Cross, it's when the SMA 50 crosses above the SMA 200. And when that happens, you buy the stock. In other words, the SMA 50 kind of shows the short-term trend because you're only looking at the past 50 days. And SMA 200 does the average of the past 200 days. So it's a much sort of smoother, longer-term trend. Now, the idea is, is that when the shorter trend crosses the longer trend, it means that the stock is about to start going up. It's going to be, it's going to go in something we call an uptrend, or the stock price just moves up. And this strategy tends to work when things are trending, when things are gradually going up or gradually going down, but it works terribly if stock prices are going in a range. Like, let's say a stock price keeps going between $10 and $12 a share, and it keep, keeps bouncing back and forth, this strategy will perform very poorly during this time. But you know what? There are thousands of different technical analysis tools and, and sort of strategies. But the question you may all be asking is, well, Rishi, does the technical analysis even work? I mean, when you look at any mutual fund or index fund, they all say past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Now, I'm not going to back down from this question on whether technical analysis works. I mean, this is a hot debate among many people, and people feel extremely passionate about it one way or the other. And so I'm going to go out and make a statement, and I'm not going to back down. I'm going to say technical analysis works, but not in a way many people use it or consider it, and not in a way it's often taught by a common book you may find in a library. Now, the best people I've met who use technical analysis... And keep in mind, I'm considering all historical market data when I say technical analysis, you know, price, volume, maybe other historical data. Um, the best people I see who use this sort of technical analysis do not use it in a way that's commonly taught in a typical trading book. They do not look at candlestick patterns, and um, I'll put a picture of what a candlestick pattern is. You kind of have to visualize it. Uh, they do not look like they not they, essentially they do not look at these price patterns and then suddenly think this is going to happen. The best traders I know who use technical analysis see as a see it as a framework to look at the world. They use it to sort of look at today's world and compare it to what's happened in the past. And not only that, they also understand that them looking at the past and then trying to predict the future doesn't work all of the time. In fact, it doesn't work a pretty significant amount of time. And then they also understand that certain technical analysis strategies work in specific market cycles, and in other market cycles, it doesn't work. And what could be a market cycle? One market cycle may be a bull market or where markets go up. Another market cycle may be where markets move sideways. So the best technicians, or that's usually what you call people in finance use technical analysis, are very so almost skeptical of their own profession. Many see it as an art, and they realize that they can't 100% put it in words what they're doing. And other times, you have people who can put it in 100% words and make computer programs that do their strategy. But they also understand that there may be a 10-year period where their technical strategy may not work, and then there may be another 10-year period where it does work wonderfully. And so technicians, the good technicians, will often spend their time trying to understand why it works and when it works. They spend time, they spend a lot of time making sure it's just not randomness or noise that they're capturing, and they're actually capturing something significant. And not only that, a lot of really good market technicians prefer simplicity to complex models. To them, a very simple model is more powerful, and there's a mathematical reason behind this that we'll cover in a future episode, but just sort of know when you start looking at a price chart and you see like you see circles and you hear things like clouds and you see everyone's drawn all over this chart, be incredibly skeptical. Um, that's oftentimes people who are successful or that are doing that. It's just that they have this sort of intuition that they developed over the years. And more often than not, the people who are doing that may not be actually that successful. I, you know, I have a few stories from the Wall Street days, but I won't get into it now. Um, but understand I've seen very good technicians and technicians who are not very good 
and I can tell you the differences in understanding when technical analysis doesn't work. So to move forward from this, this sort of disclaimer I'm making, uh, many technical analysis traders use computer programs to execute trades quickly. You know, and some academic papers actually show it works, but not extremely well like you may think. If you're scanning academic papers for technical analysis, look for something like momentum strategies. Momentum strategies say, oh, if the stock has been up for the past um, year or the past month and it's been for the past year, it'll continue to go up in the following month. But there are many different ways to capture momentum strategies, and there are academic papers that show it makes money. It just doesn't make as much money as people may sometimes think. Now, oftentimes, people use these types of technical analysis strategies, and they combine it with advanced concepts like portfolio construction to boost returns. Investors also use a technique called portfolio construction, but this is a topic we'll cover much later. It'll probably get its own episode because it can be a little bit of a complex topic. So the, the takeaway I guess I'm saying is that Technical analysis is not as easy as what people often think, and it's because a lot of books often make this claim that you can make millions by learning these patterns. If you go to a library, I remember this when I first started trading, you know, I started off self-taught and then I traded professionally, um, but I would go to the library and just pick up books. I was trying to learn everything I could about trading and investing, and there were these books that said, you can become a full-time day trader if you just know these patterns, and that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, this is something that really upsets me, so I'm going to go on a little bit of a tirade, um, and I, I hope you'll understand why I'm doing this because oftentimes these books sort of try to appeal to the new trader and it can be very damaging for somebody who's trying to use their hard-earned money to make more money. Now a lot of these books don't include things like statistics, how to measure if a strategy actually works, and the extremely complicated process and problem of finding these patterns at work. Like I said, as a new investor or trader, I can't stress enough that you don't trade real money with technical analysis when you're when you're starting out. And a lot of marketing material promises riches for following the new technical analysis system. And anytime you see like an internet advertisement or anything like that saying, this stock trading robot made a ton of money and for $1,000 a month you can find out, or $1,000 a year, you can find out what trades it recommends, always be skeptical and here's why. If you had a stock trading robot that made you tons and tons of money, why would you share it with the world? And you may be thinking, well, because I want everyone to be, I want everyone to make a ton of money. And there is a concept in markets we'll get to in a future episode that says, if you have a secretive strategy that makes you a ton of money and you reveal it to the world, the strategy no longer works. And this is a very, very common thing that occurs. And it's actually pretty true. It's not just a theory. This is what happens. And here's why. Think about it this way. If you knew that a stock robot made a ton of money and what it was going to buy, let's say you subscribe to the service and it said, buy Apple on this day. Well, if you knew this, wouldn't you buy it first? I mean, wouldn't, couldn't, you have a lot of smart people trying to make a lot of money who are motivated by money. If somebody looked at the stock robot and saw what stocks it was picking, they might reverse engineer it and then get a leg up. Because if you know the stock robot thinks Apple is going to go up, then everyone who subscribes to this is going to buy Apple as soon as the recommendation comes out. And wouldn't you want to be first? So a lot of people will spend a lot of money and a lot of time figuring out how this robot works, and so they can get even like a 5 to 10 second heads up. And so what, you, what happens in markets is as soon as people in the market figure it out, they'll place the trades ahead of you. For example, if the robot says buy Facebook at $80 a share, and then people in the market have spent a lot of time figuring out this robot, they may quickly buy it up. So by the time you can buy it at $80 a share, Facebook is now $90 a share because people bought it before you. So when you go out and you say, oh, I have this system, this robot that makes money, there are going to be a lot of people reverse engineering it to get a leg up. And then now the strategy doesn't make money because let's say the strategy said, okay, you need to buy Facebook at $80 a share and sell it at 90. But because so many engineers figured out this robot, they now bought it at 80 and the price is already at 90 before you can even get to it. Now, here's another twist. So some people, when let's say the stock robot says buy Facebook $80 a share, some people instead will start selling it at $80 a share. Because here's what's going to happen. If you're looking at this robot and it tells you buy Facebook at $80 a share, 
and it's not going up, and then you see Facebook drop to $79 a share, you're gonna exit your position because you know something is up. This, this robot isn't right this time, so you're gonna sell. And everyone else who bought Facebook at 80 is also gonna sell. So now you have people selling initially, and now you have people who bought the recommendation, and now they're selling because they're not seeing it works. So now you have double the amount of sellers. And people will purposely do this because they know what's going to happen. When they know a ton of people are going to buy one thing, they're going to start selling it. And what's going to happen? Well, now you have double the amount of sellers. The stock price is going to drop even further. And then there's going to be panic selling. And what's going to happen is the original people who sold at $80 a share are now going to buy at a very at a lower price. So is this market manipulation? Is it not? Um, you know, that's that's sort of like a debate you have to have. And it's a little bit more of a complex question. But understand that there are a lot of smart people on Wall Street. And when they see a lot of money on on the table, they'll spend their time finding ways to game the robot, game the system. And this is a well-documented fact in markets that this happens. Alpha strategies is what they're called. Often lose their edge when people discover how they work. So like I said, if somebody is promising you an amazing technical analysis strategy that works, know that there's almost a 100% guarantee that it's a sham. And I am being very strong with this. And a lot of people may be like, whoa, I haven't seen you that passionate since you talked about mutual fund fees. Um, but like I said, this is something that I see all the time and it really bothers me. And the point of this podcast is to help the new investor and also help the experienced investor. And what I can do is what I can do is make sure I bring my knowledge forth and share it with you guys and other professionals who I'll be interviewing get their knowledge and share it with everyone so that we can all become better as a society, better investors, and better traders. Now, before I conclude this section on trading, I want to discuss two more types of trading that you hear about, discretionary and quantitative trading and the stuff in between. Now, keep in mind, we discuss technical analysis, and that's sort of a tool traders use, but really there are two types of trading, discretionary, quantitative, and the stuff in between. So you can think of discretionary and quantitative trading sort of as spectrums, okay? Let's talk about discretionary first. So at the extreme end of the spectrum, there are traders who trade on gut feeling, but there's a little bit more to that. The successful discretionary traders have been watching markets for many, many years and constantly pour themselves into research and sometimes technical analysis studies. They read tons of history books and try to understand what's happening at different points in time so they can sort of frame the current market time in historical context. For example, if they think, oh, in this country, this crisis happened, now it's happening in this country, I wonder if they'll react in the same way. They seem to have the same political system, so they may actually act in the exact same way. Now, they, they also recognize that they're not going to be right 100% of the time, so they properly manage risk and they make sure that they don't take bets that are too big. And discretionary traders at this extreme end of the spectrum, at the pure discretionary trader, they don't automate this process. They believe their mind allows them to quickly adapt and understands when, market, when markets change. This is their edge, their quick ability to adapt, and their quick ability to understand that there may be a future that there's no historical precedent for. And that's where they have to use their mind, their gut feeling, and their experience with markets. Now, quantitative traders at the other extreme end are those who completely automate their process. They research markets, constantly test strategies through programming. Now, some strategies may be technical analysis based. Others may be things like news reading algorithms that take positions before anybody else can. For example, if Apple comes out and reports terrible earnings, an, uh, a news reading algorithm might read that and immediately place a start selling Apple stock before a discretionary trader could even read, read the publication. And so you have all sorts of types of automated trading strategies. And when they get a signal to buy or sell, an algorithm will automatically execute in market. Now, quantitative traders can be highly quantitative, you know, quote unquote, highly quantitative, in that they look at markets in terms of statistics or a programming problem. And then you have other quantitative traders who sort of understand market events and economic trends, but then also put it in a model framework that tells them when to buy or sell. Now, these are the two extreme ends, but Frankly, most traders are often a blend of the two, and they fall somewhere in that spectrum. For example, some traders may have algorithms that tell them when to buy or sell, but they don't always follow them. Sometimes they believe that their mind can adapt quicker, because remember, sort of when you're using a quantitative trading algorithm, you're using past market data. And they realize that the past 
precedent may not always take it may not apply to the future. So you may have some traders that look at their quantitative algorithm and then decide, you know what, I actually don't agree with my quantitative algorithm because this is the shortcoming of my algorithm. So I'm going to exercise discretion. And if my algorithm tells me to buy a stock, I'm actually not going to buy a stock. Now, after speaking with many, many traders, some traders argue that the best traders are those who take into account both quantitative strategies and also discretion. And if you want my opinion, it doesn't matter. The best trading or investing style will be what works for you and what fits your personality. It will take many years and thousands upon thousands of hours worth of work. So you really have to find something that sort of vibes with you. People often think of Wall Street or investing and trading as a glamorous, very sort of bottle service and just a party. But in reality, the top traders I've worked with constantly pour themselves into their work. They do it because they love their job. They work insane hours and they don't necessarily do it for the money or the lifestyle. In fact, the top traders I know, you would walk right by on the street and you would never know them. I've met you know, even billionaires. They dress very casually like you would just not know who they are. Unfortunately, though, the ones who are a little bit more ostentatious are the ones who get media attention. Um, but know that that's actually, in my experience, a very small minority of traders who are extremely successful. Actually, you know what? I'm going to conclude this episode now by telling you the secret of the greatest traders and investors I know. And I'll say it multiple times throughout this podcast series, but I'm going to declare it starting now in this episode. You're now at, you know, 40 something minutes in and you deserve to know this. The best trading and investor, best traders and investors I know, they often see the, their process as an art form in the sense that they look at their process as a process. They don't necessarily care about what the outcome is. They don't necessarily care about if they're rich now or rich tomorrow. To them, they just want to focus on the now and constantly get better and better. They study their mistakes intensely and they study their winners intensely. They try to decide, wait, did I get lucky or is this actually skill? And they realize that the outcome is a mixture of skill and luck. They can't control the luck, but given enough time, the skill will win out. So their focus is to constantly improve their skill, constantly document themselves, constantly be honest with themselves, constantly realize like, hey, maybe I lost because I accidentally gambled. I had this gambling tendency and that's not what I can do to win at markets in the long term. Generally, the most successful traders I've met are extremely nice people because they've been humbled many times by getting their butt kicked in markets. Yes, you hear the ones who are jerks, but jerks who are successful aren't as common as it appears. Many successful traders and the top, top traders have a philosophy behind doing what they do. So to become a good investor and trader is a ton of hard work. You hear of the people who start immediately and get rich, but many of them are very lucky and do not last long. Remember, we can't control the luck component, but we can control the skill. And over time, if we don't have much skill, we'll be most prone to luck. But when we do have a lot of skill, luck will become a much, much smaller component. So it takes a lot of grit and hard work, which is my opinion why you often see traders who are very humble. Unfortunately, the ones who are not so humble often make themselves shown on TV. You may be thinking, oh man, Rishi, this feels kind of... I don't know. It's a mixture of motivating. I know it's going to be a lot of hard work, but at the same time, I didn't realize how much hard work it's going to be. And don't be intimidated by the hard work. In fact, embrace it. Because if you embrace it, you have two options. You can decide that, you know what, you realize the amount of hard work this is going to take to get better, and you're going to dedicate yourself to it. Or two, you can decide it's really not worth it for you. You like investing, you like trading, and you like doing it as a hobby. But for you, you have other hobbies and you have another job that you find more interesting. And if it's number two, that's great because that means you can be more passive or laid back about your investments. And both are really good options. It just depends upon your personality and what you love to do. So even if you are number two, this podcast series will continue to be helpful for you because the type of stuff I'll be discussing are for those who want to trade actively and those who want to trade or invest passively. There are actually many of the same tactics you can use in both styles to improve portfolios and trading strategies, investing strategies, or long-term retirement or investing strategies. There are going to be some really cool concepts we're going to discuss. I'm pretty excited about it. Knowing about the different types and investing styles has really opened my mind up to markets. A lot of people don't typically see financial markets as a creative space, but it really is. I mean, not only do you have to be creative to come up with cool ideas many people haven't thought of, but you also have to have the courage and discipline to act on those ideas, to put your money on the line. 
A lot of traders and investors find ways to generate ideas, whether it's maybe a hobby like fishing or something, or maybe they just like going for nice walks in the park to sort of come up with new ideas. They like watching people. Maybe they write poetry, but whatever happens, they love it. They love the creative process of markets. You know, once you get into investing and trading, even if it's passive, you're going to be walking through the streets of a city or a mall and suddenly you see a new store or restaurant. You may eat the food, try it out, and you'll love it. And you may want to see if it's a good investment. Maybe you find out that that new restaurant is publicly traded on a stock exchange. And maybe it's only the 12th store open, and so it's still a small company. And so you may be thinking like, huh, I wonder, I want to analyze this company and see if it's a good investment or a good trade. And so now you'll start seeing the world filled with opportunities, and your brain will constantly be coming up with new ideas. And this is true even if you're just in index funds. Because you're going to start thinking of the world and seeing different opportunities, maybe measuring the economy, talking to people, getting an idea of how the job market is, everything you can. And so my goal in this series is to help you get your ideas, these creative ideas you get, into, into your portfolio in the best possible way you can imagine. And maybe your ideas lead to index funds or stocks and bonds, but even in that space, even in the passive investing space, there's so much we can do to improve our portfolios. I can't tell you how excited I am because now we're getting into the really, really fun stuff. Okay, all, I hope you've had as much fun listening to this episode as I've had creating it. Please email me with feedback at rishi at tingo.com. That's my first name is spelled R-I-S-H-I at T-I-I-N-G-O dot com. Actually, Rishi is a common Indian name. Um, in the Mindy Project, if any of you guys watch it, her younger brother's named Rishi. So I actually didn't know it was a common Indian name until I went to India to visit. And I realized, whoa, there are a ton of Rishis. And now as time has gone on, I've, I've met a lot in the U.S. too. Um, but yeah, email me if you have any questions or if you have any feedback. And if I can't respond to your question in a Q&A podcast, I'll send you a response. Now, I sometimes send ridiculously long email replies back to people, sometimes two pages long um, because it just gets my mind churning and I like to give all perspectives. But if I feel like that's going to happen going forward, I'll probably ask for a 15-minute phone call to discuss with you your answer because it just takes up uh, too much of my time to write a two- or three-page email every question I get. Um, anyway... If you really enjoy this podcast and the Tingo mission or the web app or the community, anything at all, I would love it if you could support the Tingo project, even if it's only $2 a month. And the website is tingo.com forward slash support, T-I-I-N-G-O.com forward slash support. It helps me a ton. It helps continue this project. And it shows that this project is really wanted by everybody. And so far, everyone I've spoken to... Um, Anywhere I meet, coffee shops or whatever, they love this. I was on the phone support uh, with PayPal, and I just started talking to one of the guys. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is great. And I spoke to a couple of PayPal reps, and I started noticing my podcast was accessed by one of their call centers a lot. And it just shows that this mission really resonates with a lot of people. Um, so in the future, I'm going to start interviewing more people. In the next episode, in the next Q&A episode, I'm working with an individual called uh, named Brett Harris, about student loans. And it's going to be a great episode. We're doing a lot of prep work. So if you have any student loans, get ready. We're going to help you find a way to understand them, what your options are. Or if you're getting ready to get into student loans, uh, we're going to discuss what your options are. Brett Harris is a great individual. I've spoken to him and collaborated with him so far, and it's going to be a great Q&A episode. All right, guys, until next time, I'll talk to you soon.